You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its keen and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, and everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days." On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the shout of the trumpet, or the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, 
both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for... We thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. Lord, we trust that this is not just a child's story that we would talk about, but this is actually a story that reveals your good heart towards us as our loving God, as our promise-keeping God, and that this story, your word, would come and speak and open our hearts to encounter you in such a way that you would tear down whatever walls might surround our hearts today and that you would help us to come to know you and to be in right relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you would come and that you would uh, do a work inside of us, that you would give uh, strength to the weak, that you would give healing to the sick, um, that you would give repentance to the re rebellious, that you would give courage to the fearful, God, that you would do that and much more through the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help our hearts to surrender to you and to hear from you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. <laughs> so last week, uh, as I preached through Joshua chapter 5, I asked uh, this question. I asked, uh, what area of your life are you seeking victory in right now? That was the question from last week. What area of your life are you seeking victory in right now? Now, I don't doubt that as you hear that question fresh this morning, that you might immediately think about some kind of relational or, or spiritual or, or physical barrier or battle that you've been fighting with for a long time uh, of the reality is is that every one of us has major areas of struggle in our lives no matter how much we clean up the outside of our lives there are major areas of struggle in each of our lives because we are human and because we are broken by sin probably isn't hard to identify some area of your life where you have been waiting for God to just show up and give you the victory, right? 
the question that I want to ask this morning that's on the screen in front of you is, what will you anchor yourself to while you're waiting for God to give you that victory? What are you going to anchor yourself to while you're waiting for God to give you that victory? What, what truths from God's Word are you going to anchor the ship of your life to when the boat is getting rocked by the truth that we don't have complete victory this side of heaven? Because it's very appropriate for us to long and to desire and to want the victory. Uh, but it's also appropriate for us to grieve the fact that we live here on earth and we are not yet in heaven, and therefore our lives will not taste complete victory this side of heaven. There will always be a place of struggle because we have not arrived yet. One of the major dangers in Christianity is believing that one has somehow arrived at a place where we no longer need the mercy and the love of God and the help of God. This is a major danger within the body of Christ. And you see its effects often in people's lives. So, what truth will you anchor the ship of your life to when the boat is getting rocked by the truth that we have not yet experienced or tasted complete victory this side of heaven, and that heaven is still in the future. Well, Joshua chapter 6, um, a massive chunk of Scripture that we just read together, it took me six minutes to read it. So that might cause many of you to feel really uncomfortable when you know that we can easily take three or four words from one single verse and preach for hours. Um, as you look at this massive chunk of text, my belief is that there are pieces and portions of this text that can act like those anchors for us. When we find ourselves fighting the battles that we have that are peculiar to each of us personally in this life, there are portions of this text that I believe can act like anchors. And I honestly cannot deal with every portion of the text, but there are probably more than I'm going to point out this morning. So I just want to invite you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you as you hear me speak. And as you hear me explain, because there's probably lots more than what I'm going to have time to deal with today. But I hope the ones I lay in front of you will be helpful. I want to begin by looking at uh, kind of the structure of the passage a little bit. Kind of get our heads into the story. The next slide on the screen in front of you will kind of give you that. And we'll leave that up for a, a little bit. Um, kind of the, the, the way that the, the, the text kind of flows um, as you break it down to three parts, because every good preacher breaks the text down at at least three parts, sometimes four, depending upon time. They teach you that in uh, seminary. Uh, first portion is going to be verses one through seven. We're going to look at that for a little bit here in a minute. Um, what we're going to see there is just basically a section that is basically God's instructions to Israel. Pretty basic. Next section we'll look at after that will be uh, section uh, verses eight through twenty-one. Uh, we'll see Israel's detailed obedience to God's instructions there. Um, third section we'll look at um, will be uh, verses 22 through 27, where we're going to see God's promise of deliverance fulfilled. So those are kind of the three working sections that I want to work us through. Give us some explanation on the way through, and then land down at the end with some application 
some anchor points. So, number one, uh, God's instructions for the battle, right? Verses 1 through 7. If you're looking back at Joshua chapter 5 for a moment, and even if you remember from last week, if you were here, you'll remember at the end of chapter 5, we left Joshua laying flat on his face in worship before the presence of the Lord, right? And he's asking the Lord, hey, uh, God, what do you want to say to me? Um, That was kind of the end of chapter 5 and verse 14. Um, And and really the first instruction from the Lord to Joshua there at the end of chapter 5, that first instruction, um, pretty simple. Um, He just instructed Joshua to remove the sandals from his feet, right? Because he's on holy ground um, was what the Lord said to him. Um, That encounter that we saw there, you might remember from last week, and you might even be able to sense it now, very, very similar to uh, the story of Moses, who was the guy that discipled Joshua, right? Very, very similar to that encounter that Moses had with the Lord in Exodus at the burning bush. Um, So similar, in fact, is that uh, this encounter for Joshua that uh, many commentators and scholars believe that this uh, commander of the Lord's army was, in fact, maybe Jesus making an appearance. Um, to Joshua. There are three different ways of looking at that. I land on the first one that I mentioned. I just really believe that that is the presence of the Lord himself, the similar, because of the similarities between Joshua and Moses. <coughs> and so we kind of ended there, right? Now as you turn your attention to chapter 6, I think we can safely presume that Joshua is still flat on his face in worship to his king, And that the first seven verses or so that we're studying here um, are are, are basically the detailed instructions that the Lord gave to him in that posture, okay? Um, So we're we're thinking that that's probably the way that looks. As you look at these now, as you, you put yourself in that place, you're before the Lord in whatever capacity, you're worshiping before the Lord, you're on your face, he's given you these instructions for how to pursue victory in the battle you are facing. As you look at these instructions, uh, they're pretty straightforward, right? Verses 1 through 7, not a lot of fluff to them. God simply instructs Israel to march around the city of Jericho for seven days. Once per day, for the first six, seven times on the seventh day. And basically all of the armed men are, are supposed to go first. They're supposed to go first, followed by seven priests with seven trumpets, followed by the Ark of the Covenant, and then behind that, the rear guard. So there's kind of a specific order that they're to go. But don't miss the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is going with them. They are going where the presence of God is going. Uh, they're going where the Word of God is going. Um, that's the significance of the presence of the Ark. The presence of God, through the revealed Word of God, is going this direction. Therefore, God's people are going to go this direction and taste victory. Okay? Um, so we, we see that. It's fairly straightforward. Um, and as you think about these instructions, uh, you'll notice that those instructions, I think I've alluded to this in previous sermons already, these instructions, these commands of God, they're always given with a promise. Uh, this, uh, this first section, the promise of this section, you'll see in verse 2 and verse 5, you mash those two together and they say this, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its keen and mighty men of valor. The wall 
of the city will fall down. That's the promise that supports the commands and the instructions. So the point here in verses 1 through 7, the point of these divine instructions is what? What do you think it is? I think that it teaches us that the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to our promise-keeping God. God is the one who fights the battle at Jericho. Okay, Contrary to the popular kids' song that we teach our kids, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, right? Maybe we shouldn't teach our kids that song because Joshua didn't fight the battle at Jericho. That's a, that's a mind blower for a moment, isn't it? Joshua didn't do any fighting. Joshua walked around the walls. The inhabitants of Jericho were locked up inside because they were frightened. The person that fought the battle was God. God's self-revelation, his promise in this is what? I have given Jericho into your hand. This is about God. This is not about how Joshua was the hero. Oftentimes we teach ourselves that I want to be like Joshua. Well, you do want to be like Joshua and listen to the word of the Lord, yes. But the reality is that God is the hero of this story. We must not forget that. So, God is the one who fights the battle. And Israel's responsibility is to simply trust and obey their king for the victory. So that's the first section. Second section, verses 8 through 21. Somebody say, I'm there. Second section, 8 through 21, <coughs> we see Israel's detailed obedience, right? Israel's detailed obedience. So God has given his divine instructions to Joshua. Joshua has obediently passed those instructions along to Israel. Now, Israel is obediently following the Lord's instructions to the T, right? To the letter, even to the extent that they are absolutely silent as they're marching city for the first six days. Can you imagine how hard that would be? You're marching around the battle, around, around, around the city. Uh, you know that God has said, hey, we already won this thing. I mean, okay, so you go back to the Husher game yesterday, and uh, let's not too soon, maybe this will make it better. I mean, if we had known that we were definitely going to win that game, how much would our team be taunting people? How much would you as a fan be taunting people? Like, oh, we got this. They walked around the city silent, right? It says something. They knew who it was that was giving them the victory. They knew that the victory didn't depend upon their ability to swing the sword well. They knew that the victory came from the Lord. So on the seventh day, they get up, they get out of the camp, and they begin their seven-circuit march around that city. They're, they're poised, they're ready to let out this victory shout when the narrator of the story kind of like presses pause. You know how that happens when you're watching a movie, right? You're like right at this cliffhanging edge, and then suddenly it's like, boop, you go back to some other memory somewhere, you're like, what is going on? I want to see what's going to happen. It's like cliffhanger. Kind of what happens in the text here um, in verses 15 and 16, even 17 through 19, um, narrator kind of presses pause they're ready to let out this scream, and he interrupts the story for these, some, some details that are really important. 
Uh, for us to notice that this final detail is, is the detail that uh, is in regards to the destruction of the city, number one, the preservation of Rahab, number two, and even the preservation of those valuable objects, right, that are going to get put into the Lord's treasury, all those precious metals. So the narrator presses pause um, <clears throat> to give us those details. These are important for us because they're an important indicator about what this story is actually about. Um, I want to come back to the topic of destruction and preservation um, in just a moment. Um, but I just want you to notice now um, that Israel is, again, co- they're completely obedient to the Lord, right? Um, and the walls of Jericho fall down flat, which is really something important for us to understand. When it says the walls fell down flat, the original Hebrew language doesn't mean that the walls fell out or that the walls fell in. The walls actually fell down flat from top to bottom. They got smushed. Uh, And what commentators have noticed all the way back to the church fathers and the reformers, that this is like a sovereign, uh, powerful pressure from heaven coming down from above and just literally decimating those walls straight down. Uh, It's a really interesting picture, I think, if you think about the fact that when God was talking to Joshua back in chapter 5, when Joshua was like, hey, did you come for us? Did you come for them? And he's like, no, I came to take over. Hello, right? Um, It's that picture. God did this work. Um, So that's just a fascinating piece. Um, um, and, and, and yet, as you, as, you, as you continue to look at the story, um, you see that after those walls come down, they enter the city and they destroy every living creature with the edge of their swords. Right? Destroy every living creature with the edge of their swords. Um, I think that this scene, uh, if, if we were there in person, um, I, I, I don't think that I can adequately... Uh, paint the picture for us, number one, because the church is so against R-rated stuff, right? Like, if we actually had a movie that depicted what was happening here, I think it'd be really horrifying. I I wish that I could, as a preacher, somehow help us feel that, because I think it would bring the meaning of this text home more, the horror of what happened inside the walls of the fallen walls of Jericho. This is God's man, right? Joshua. This is God's people. And uh, the scene, I think, is absolutely horrifying. I I can't imagine the bloodbath of the destruction inside Jericho. Listen, the Hebrew word that is used for this phrase, devoted to destruction, uh, it's a word uh, that that it's got a couple different versions. I'm going to roll with this one. It's a word that that is basically pronounced karam. God basically looks at Joshua and looks at Israel and he goes, go karam them. Destroy them. It's a picture of utter, complete destruction. Okay, It's, it's, not, it's, it's total annihilation. That's the kind of word here. And here's the thing. For people who are not Christians, and even for those who are, this is a troubling thing to think about. That our God, that we posit as this great, loving, merciful God who could have children sitting on his knee and he laughs at them and he has blue eyes and he has blonde hair, of course, because he's got to be more American than he is Jewish. But this Jesus, he's loving, he's soft. Um, so it's hard for us to reconcile 
this picture of an angry, wrath-filled, vengeance-taking, justified God. It's hard to find justice in this story if you don't spend some time with it, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you that are here are probably like, yeah, I'm with you. I actually resist this story because I resist this idea of an angry father. I've tasted the picture of an angry father, and you're telling me that this God in heaven that you trust is angry? I don't know that I want anything to do with that. So I think sometimes we as Christians, we like to give platitudinal answers, right? Like, well, the Bible says so, so, you know. But what if you don't believe the Bible is true? How will you approach that then, brothers and sisters? This is important for us in a generation um, that rejects a lot of what is said here. So I want to deal with it this way. I want to say that, uh, again, I, I, I rip on platitudinal answers, but there is kind of a platitude here that God, because God is perfect and He is divine and I am not, He can do things that I can't. Um, he's not limited, but I am. These things make sense to me. Uh, at the end of the day, I've always, I've always landed on this answer. A God, because of His perfection, He has the complete ability to be, to, to be so totally filled with a justified wrath and anger because he's perfect, and at the same time be completely full of love and mercy and grace. And that to me is a complete mystery. Um, it's hard for me to boil all of that down, but I think you see that here. Um, one other point, I think, as I move into this picture of destruction that takes place that I think is important is that this word karam, uh, uh, devoted to destruction, it's used, uh, it's used quite a bit in the Old Testament, but I will say, um, without having the exact numbers in front of me, um, uh, let's say that there's 68 times that it's used in the Old Testament. Um, 60 of those times are used in, in Joshua, um, is my understanding, um, but used for different kinds of things, and it's only used twice in regards to the utter destruction of people. And that's in the Battle of Jericho and the Battle of Ai, which is coming up next week and the week after. Um, so you might keep that in mind. You might say, why does this even matter? Well, because we live in a nation, uh, and we live in a world um, um, that likes to use um, certain proof texts for national policy, right? Let's go carpet bomb those guys. Anybody remember that statement? Um, this could be a text that could be used for that, carpet bombing our enemies. Can I just say that nothing could be further uh, from what I would say is total uh, a ripoff of what the Bible actually says and means? You cannot use this text for a national policy for dealing with our enemies that says, annihilate them. You can't do that when it's only been used twice here for very specific purposes. I think we must be careful in a Christian, although I would argue for very post-Christian in our nation. I argue for a Christian nation all day long, but I would argue for a post-Christian based upon the culture we live in. Um, you cannot use a text like this to undergird that. This text was never meant to do that. It's very unfaithful. So uh, one, one of the theological themes throughout the book of Joshua is um, basically this. Joshua, the Israelites, and the Canaanites, the, the original kind of inhabitants of this land, um, all three of these groups, they, they all have a choice to make. 
And as all of us do, have a choice to make. They all have a choice to make in regards to God's promises, God's commands, and God's presence. It is absolutely futile for any of us to resist or rebel against the promises, the commands, and the presence of God. Uh, so one author says it this way. Um, he, he observes um, that the, the, the physical extermination of the Canaanites, let's not forget, when, 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 when Joshua and the Israelites went into Jericho with their swords, they killed every living creature, okay? Let's be real about how horrific this scene is. Let's not try to just butter it up and make it less than it really is. God told his people to kill everybody from childhood up, okay? That's a heavy word. So one of the questions that I would be asked is this. I can't deal with this for very long, but I just I think this is worth throwing out there. The culture looks at us as Christians and they go, okay, so you're against abortion, but you're pro this. I don't understand. And the best answer that we have for them oftentimes is, well, the Bible says so. That's because we really don't care about the person asking the question. Don't you think? Don't hear me wrong. I am pro-life, anti-abortion, for any reason, and I would be happy to have a conversation with you about that. But I'm pro-life, right, for, for any age. And yet this text elicits questions in a lost culture around us that I say, and I think God would say, leaves an indictment on the church for the way that we've answered these questions. So I think this is important for us to wrestle with. It's definitely futile for us to resist. Um, one, one author um, observes all of the horrors of this by saying this. I think he says this really well. Um, he says that the physical extermination of the Canaanites um, in Joshua 6 might serve best uh, in a conversation of, to point us to the truth that the horrors of Gehenna, hell, um, will be no less than that of Jericho. That the, the, the horrific reality of an eternal hell, uh, this may be a very physical picture of that. Which then again, I don't think that that answers the question totally for an unbeliever, right? Um, I think we have to be sensitive I think, it, I think it means that there's a much longer conversation that must take place now about eternal things, eternal matters. Well, hell, let's talk about it. Will God really be a loving God and do that? Well, let me ask you this question. If somebody came in to your home and raped all of your daughters, right, and then the judge just goes, well, you know what, I want to be a loving God, I, I, you know, a loving judge. I, I, don't, I don't know that we should necessarily punish that man for doing that. Well, you, that would not be justice, would it? wouldn't be justice at all. That's an extreme way of getting at some of the principles of justice that I can't spend all day on here, but those are some of the ways you can have the conversation, right? So the horrors of Gehenna or hell will be no less than those of Jericho. God will deal with completely in the future and has dealt with um, all of our enemies, Satan, sin in the world, and death. He has done that in a very serious, in a very horrific, in a very sobering way at the cross of Christ. So the cross of Christ is the epitome of all this horror coming to one place on the person who is absolutely perfect and doesn't deserve the punishment. So um, we talk about justice. We talk about salvation. We talk about destruction. There's so many points of connection here that I think are, are very important. 
one of the points here is this, that God's judgment against sin and rebellion is basically no laughing matter. This is something we should not laugh about. Um, all too often, I think the church is very guilty of picking pet peeve sins, right? While pretending like the others don't exist. We're happy talking about how that person sinned. And we're, we're happy posting things about how the world around us is going to hell in a handbasket because of national policy, because of yada, 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 yada. But when was the last time you sat and you talked about the horror of your sin that put our Savior on the cross? That should be the conversation that Christians should be having. But oftentimes, what? We think we've arrived. And therefore, we get away from our need for a Savior and our utter, the utter horror of our own sin. And we cover it up. And we become effectively whitewashed tombs that Jesus preached about. So, as we look at the bloodshed on this day at Jericho, horrifying it as it was, um, it was the bloodshed of highly evil people. Um, I, I would spend more time on that, um, but they were highly evil. Um, it, for some of you that are, you that are understanding of the, the story of Nineveh, um, the people in Jericho uh, were on par. My understanding of my study, you can go back to Genesis 15, uh, Deuteronomy 9, Leviticus 18. You can pick up some of the story there and you can kind of get a sense of what's happening inside of Jericho. Um, and so, so the sense here in God's absolute destruction of the city of Jericho and its inhabitants, it seems totally justified. Um, and yet again, does not appear to be something that you can use as a national policy. The rest, of, the rest of the story outside of Jericho and Ai is just simply Israel fighting to take the land and subduing the people there, not utterly destroying them. Um, so I think that's important. At the same time as we look at all this destructive language, same time that we look at all that, you also see God's redemption, right? And in his preservation of Rahab and her family. Why? Because of her faith-filled obedience with the spies back in Joshua chapter 2. So on the one hand, we spent some time talking about God's judgment and God's destruction of his enemies. Let's also think about the way that God utterly saves and preserves a prostitute, a woman that many of us would not want to talk to. I remember being at a hotel with some men once, and there was a prostitute who asked, asked for a ride. Our response was, oh, no, sorry, I'm busy. Well, why was that our response, men? Why wasn't our response, let's go help this lady out? I get it if you're alone. But why, why was that our response? Because there's something inside of all of us that says, I'm much better than you are. Why did we name this church the well? Not because we wanted to make better people. We wanted to make transformed people. We wanted to meet people at the well where they would go. Why was that woman at the well? Because she was an outcast of her society. She wasn't clean. She wasn't pretty. Broken. She slept with most men in town is my assumption. Now you think about Rahab, one commentator hope I can get this statement correct. Uh, you know, it, brought, it broke me when I read it um, as I was reading about Rahab 
Um, basically, the commentator said that when you read the story of Rahab, what you see is God using a whore with a heart of gold to do his work. That's crazy. There's not many of us that probably want to refer to ourselves that way, but if you read the prophets speaking to the Christians of that day, what do the prophets call Israel of that day? Often, you have whored after things that bring dishonor to my name. Why would there be any need for all of those prophetic books throughout Scripture? Because my heart oftentimes plays the whore and runs after things that bring dishonor to God's name. And yet God says, that's exactly the person I want to be a part of my kingdom. That's, that's crazy. That should humble us, shouldn't it? We see the preservation of Rahab and her entire family because of their obedience. And the point here, I think, in this section, section is that God takes sin and faith very seriously. God doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't laugh at sin. But God simultaneously always provides a way of escape from the consequences of sin through faith in his promises and obedience to his commands. Which leads me to the final chunk of Scripture um, in our text, right? Uh, God's promises of deliverance get fulfilled in verses 22 through 27. So if you're tracking with me, here's where we've been. God has given his instructions based upon his promises to Israel, right? Uh, and then Israel has trusted God's promise and they've obeyed his instructions. And the walls of Jericho are lying in ruins. The inhabitants of Jericho are being slaughtered with the sword of Israel's fighting men. But Rahab's home, Rahab's home, the person who probably wouldn't be in first place on your membership roster in your church. Rahab's home is presumably still standing. I, I would imagine that the people of Jericho had to have been thinking, what the heck is going on? Why, why is that lady's house still standing? Israel knew. Joshua knew. God knew. And true to his word, true to Joshua, and probably true to God's word, Joshua sends the two spies to Rahab's home. They bring her and her relatives and everyone into her household, out of the city of destruction, to the edge of the Israelite camp before burning the city to an ash heap. And there's also a note that she's still living in Israel to this day, which means she moved from the outer realm outside the city of Israel or outside the nation of Israel into the nation of Israel. It became a, a bona fide member, okay? Um, so you can, you can see all that there if you look at it. The final scene of the story in chapter 6 is Joshua cursing anyone who decides to rebuild what God has devoted to destruction. And then there's a final comment on how the Lord is with Joshua and he's making his name great throughout the land. Um, the point here, I believe in this section, is that because God is our redeeming God, then we must never, never play around with the things that God has given up for destruction. We don't play with things that God has marked for destruction at the cross of Christ. We don't, we don't pretend like it's not sin when God's word says it's sin. We don't mess with that um, because there's a curse on any who would. Point of that. So some application quickly um, 
here. Um, the way that I often do application is I'm looking for anchor points in the text like I talked about earlier, right? Uh, and I, I know that we started late and we're going to run late, but I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, life on this side of heaven can sometimes be full of uh, one battle after the next, right? Anybody ever get the sense that it's like, man, it's just one Jericho after the next for you? Um, life is not easy. Um, sometimes it's just hard to get out of bed in the morning, right? Um, so, so if you're there, uh, hopefully um, there can be some anchor points here in the text that might be helpful uh, to you. Uh, again, the way that I often do that when I'm saying a large portion of, of, of Scripture is just by simply praying and asking the Lord to help me identify, highlight some portions of the text that can do just that, uh, that can kind of anchor my heart in the midst of the battles and the storm. Uh, so I've got three points uh, that I kind of want to leave you with. These are short. They won't take long. promise. Three things that I think would be helpful. Number one, the battle belongs to the Lord. Number two, God is our redeeming God. Number three, God takes sin and faith seriously. You've heard me kind of preach these things already. I want, to, I want you to hear where I root them. So anchor point number one, the battle belongs to God. Verses 2, 16, and 20. Read this way. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its keen and mighty men of valor. Verse 16, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 20, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. My responsibility uh, is to trust and obey my king for the victory, right? Now, this doesn't mean that you and I get to sit back passively uh, and just wait upon the Lord to win my battles for me. I have an active part to play in this battle. The weapons of my warfare are not of this earth. They are which is interesting because isn't that what we as Christians do? We take the weapons of this, worth, of this earth and we try to make them into somehow like Christian weapons, right? Don't we? I mean, isn't that right? Israel wanted a king so bad. They trusted in the systems of this earth to be their savior. I'd be remiss to uh, try to tell you that I don't sometimes fall into that same thing. Typically when I'm watching Fox News or CNN, either one, I don't care which political platform they carry or support. I watch any of those news channels for about five minutes, and I start just, the inside of me gets anxious. I start thinking, oh, i got to do something about this. But the problem is, is it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And the weapons of our warfare are not of this earth. Scriptures are clear about that, Right? They're spiritual weapons. My fight is not against flesh and blood. As much as I dislike many of the presidential candidates, my fight is not against that person. I must also remember that I need to pick the fights that God is actually picking. That would be really important for me to remember too. I need to actually engage in the fights that God is actually picking. It's interesting, Jesus was very silent oftentimes especially when religious people would ask him questions. Let that sink in. So you've been saved longer than five minutes. What does that make you? It makes you and I religious people, right? But we need to be careful that we're picking the right battles. I, I want to do that through constant communion with my Father in prayer and Scripture study. So the battle belongs to God. Number two, anchor point number two, God is our redeeming God, verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her 
father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So again, the absolute destruction of Jericho, the salvation of Rahab and her family, they teach me that God is my redeeming God. God has every right to wipe me out of existence for my sin against him. And not just my sin in the past, but my sin this morning. God has every right to wipe me out for that. And yet, in his mercy and his grace, he's extended his love towards me in the cross of Christ, and he's helped me to trust in him. Is that you this morning? Has he moved you to that place where you've trusted in him? That should not cause pride and arrogance like you somehow have all the right answers because you think you've arrived. It should create a humility and a humbleness deep down inside of us and a longing and a compassion to serve the people of this neighborhood to the ends of the earth with the same message of compassion and love in the gospel that is set right next to this picture of the justice and the wrath of God. extended his love towards us. I, 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 in my relationship with the Lord, it's been restored out of the ash heap of sin. I've been redeemed. I'm no longer destined for destruction. I'm destined for eternal life in heaven because of the cross and the empty tomb of Christ. If that's your story, that should continue to transform you moving forward. God is our redeeming God. Anchor point number three. <coughs> sin and faith very seriously. Verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. To God, has delivered me from this body of death. Right? If you've trusted in him, you can say the same thing. God has delivered me from this body of death. Therefore, I must never play around with the things that God has marked for destruction, meaning Satan, sin, death, the grave, the things of this world. God doesn't ignore, he doesn't laugh at sin, he always provides a way of escape from the consequences of sin, he does that through active faith in his promises and obedience to his commands. So I need to be careful to hear the Spirit of the Lord when I begin to backslide into winking at sin, and when I begin to behave as though my profession of faith doesn't require faith-filled So God takes sin and faith very seriously. In conclusion, I would say this. At the end of the day, if there was a summarizing statement for this passage, I would say that the battle belongs to the Lord. He is our redeeming God who takes sin and faith seriously. If there's a big idea in this text, I think that's the big idea. I think it's taking all of that and condensing it down to one statement. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is our redeeming God who takes sin and faith seriously. And where do you think you see the proof of this at the most? The cross. At the cross of Christ is where you see the proof of this the most. Our battle against sin and our battle against the world and our battle against the things that seek to hold us back, that battle belongs to the Lord. He is our redeeming God and He takes sin and faith seriously. If He didn't, He would have never sent His Son to die on that cross. So we can be humbled and we can be encouraged this morning that God in heaven is the one who does this work in us. He will never discontinue a work once he begins it. So if he has begun a work inside of you and you're here this morning, uh, you can be humbled 
and you can be instructed, and you can be rebuked maybe even, but you can also be encouraged by this. If God began to work in you, you are his son or his daughter, nothing can ever change that. You can't change that, and God doesn't start something that he's about to discontinue. The picture of the cross and the picture of the empty tomb is proof that our redeeming God holds the battle in his hand, sin and faith culminate cross on a hill called Calvary. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for our time together and we thank you for this passage. Pray, Father, that uh, you would continue to take it and apply it to our hearts um, over the next few moments in the hours to come and the days to come. We ask, Father, that you would help us to um, meet you at the foot of a bloody cross where you paid the price for our sin and to find you in the doorway of an empty tomb where you're saying, hey, come, follow me. I am alive, not dead. Satan, sin, and the grave have no power over you. Trust in that promise. We look forward to a future heaven. ask that you would inhabit our praises. Jesus name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.